Hello there, and welcome to today's episode of The Pickup Line. My name is Justin, and I thought we would do something a little bit different today. I know everyone is sort of panicking and um, scared and at home and trying to stay put, and I've seen a lot of great people out there offering whatever they can to help with that. Zoos hosting live sessions uh, with their animals, uh, celebrity artists, um, musical artists, uh, Chris, Chris Martin playing the piano from his home on, on a live Facebook stream. Um, people putting out their material early, uh, releasing films so people can watch them. I wish I could offer more, um, but this is something that I can offer. And so I thought it might be fun if you want to gather around and listen to a story. Um, this is a book that I wrote um, a couple years ago. It's a fantasy fiction novel series. There's three of them. Um, it's called The Twinning. And uh, I'm not, this isn't supposed to be anything self-serving in any kind of way. I just, I thought it might be fun if you're looking for something to do. Um, tune in, listen to this book being read by its author, and it might be something fun to do um, this afternoon and these, these days when we're all kind of, as Chris Martin coined it, uh, home together. So let's, uh, let's dive right in. This is, uh, this is me reading the twinning verse one, the silver coins. The Twinning, Verse 1, The Silver Coins, by Justin R. Carey. Go then, there are other worlds than these. Jake, from Stephen King's The Dark Tower. Prologue. The woman sitting in the prison cell was, in fact, the queen of the very kingdom responsible for her condemnation. Murder was her crime. Her husband, the king himself, had sentenced her to execution. After all, she'd killed his brother, and in the forbidden way. The woman in the cell knew the real reason why she was sitting there soaked and dejected, but that did not matter anymore. She would not be killed by the executioner's blade or the hangman's noose. It would be the thought of leaving her young daughter that would truly kill her. She was consoled, however, because she had another child on the way, and this one would be special. Not that the new could ever replace the old, but this world had emptied for her like water flowing from a shattered pitcher. She could not stay here. She knew she would have to start over again on the other side, and things would be difficult at first, but she would adapt. Lightning rang out in the sky above the castle as the kingdom was drowned by the torrential rain. The woman's execution was scheduled for the next morning at dawn. She would have to leave tonight with no goodbyes, no condolences. She was alone now, but on the other side, she would be comforted. She rubbed her belly, still small and unnoticeable, making it easier to keep the baby a secret for quite a while. That didn't even matter now. There was nothing she could do. Soon the child would be home. No amount of pleading could save her, for her husband's heart had been hardened and decayed. Not even he could see her innocence. Not even he could see the web of lies and deceit that had been spun around her, entangling her and choking her very life. She had no alternative but to flee from this place and never come back. She'd gone back and forth so many times before, the thought that this would be her last time tore at her heart. Sadly, the choice was already made. She waited for the proper moment with the guard out of earshot and sight. She bid farewell to her beautiful world and closed her eyes. She thought for a moment, concentrated, and then seemed to grow thin and opaque. Her body faded out like a dying flame, and she was gone. The prison cell was empty. 
When the guard returned and saw she was missing, he raised the alarm. The search would go on for days, the entire kingdom in an uproar. Everyone, from the highest official to the smallest peasant, would search for her, but the queen would not be found. One, changes. Michael Smith was in the eighth grade at Levy Middle School and he hated it. He had never had so much work in his short life. He felt like the whole world was on top of his shoulders. After his parents' divorce, everything changed. Nothing was the same for Michael. The kids treated him differently. His friends thought he was weird now. And they didn't want to be friends anymore. Even the teachers treated him differently, like he had some kind of disease or mental condition and they had to always treat him a certain way. Michael felt like he was some piece of gossip that could only be whispered about, and he didn't like it. Michael wore jeans and a t-shirt. He always dressed simply. His book bag was an East Pack, bought with the hopes that somehow the stitched-together fabric and metal zippers would make him cool. He felt like writing to the East Pack company and telling them just how cool what stupid bag made you. He had scruffy dark hair and several pimples on his face, but nothing too serious, not enough to worry about. Michael went through the same routine every day. Wake up, eat breakfast, ride the bus, go to class, get laughed at, go home. Not necessarily in that exact order, but he was really getting tired of it. Soon, however, everything would change. Of course, Michael did not know that. It happened one day, and of all places, the boys' bathroom. As he so often went to the bathroom to escape the looks and lurid comments of his peers, Michael found himself even more deeply troubled today as he sat in his favorite stall thinking. He was thinking about his mother. He had not seen her since the divorce trial. Michael's father had informed his son that Michael would not be able to see his mother on a regular basis and that full custody would rest with Mr. Smith. Michael remembered that day well. He'd been so angry because he was not allowed to be at the trial to see his mother one last time. He had to wait in some hotel room with a babysitter and watch morning television. After that, he never saw his mother again and she seemed to fade out of his life like a ghost. There one minute, gone the next. The only information about her that he received was from his father. Michael sorely missed his mother. He sat there in the dark pea-green toilet stall inside the small blue-tiled bathroom and felt like weeping. No, not felt like. Michael was on the verge of weeping, like a cliff diver taking that last breath before plummeting down. And he did. Michael wept for his family, his mother, whom he loved deeply but also hated for leaving his father now alone for himself and all his problems. Then it happened. The air seemed to become thicker, heavier somehow. Michael began to sweat from his brow, droplets running down the length of his nose and falling off the end. Plink, plink, plink. He could feel his head spinning. The stall seemed to grow hazy and out of focus. He didn't know what was happening. He thought he was dying, and this is what death must be like, everything spinning and getting fuzzy. Just when Michael thought the end was upon him, it stopped, and instead of the porcelain toilet seat he had been sitting on moments before, he found himself seated on a large tree stump in a field of what looked like roses of the deepest red. Michael looked around and wondered exactly where he was and what had happened to the bathroom. His mind tried to make some sense of the situation, like someone putting together a large and intricate puzzle. One moment he was in his stall in the boys' room of Levy, the next he was sitting on a tree stump in a field of roses, and was that a little girl playing in the flowers? He did not know what to think. Was he dreaming? Was he hallucinating? 
Did he die in that stall at Levy, and was this some sort of afterlife? All these thoughts and more flew around inside Michael's head as he surveyed the deep blue sky, the grass, a green so brilliant it nearly hurt the eyes to look at, a green so rich it was as if this green was not the color green, but the perfect idea of the color green, culled straight from the imagination of a child. The air held a certain sweet and cool essence, unmistakable to Michael. Even the clouds in the sky looked unrestrained, free of labels and words, roaming the blue expanse like wild animals on an open plain. In fact, everything here seemed to be too colorful, too bright. He couldn't understand it. Before he could think about anything else, and before he ever noticed it, the figure he thought was a little girl had walked over to him and now stood a few feet away, examining him with a disapproving eye. Pardon me, but who are you? This is my field, and you are not permitted to be here. Furthermore, from where do you hail? I have never seen garments such as those. Are you from across the sea? Did you arrive here on a ship? If you did, my father should be informed at once. Michael was puzzled by the way this girl, young but nearly the same age as Michael, used the type of language he heard his father use, commanding and authoritative, confident and bold. And what did she mean by, by kingdom? Michael was very confused, and all he could muster to say was his name. He said, uh, Michael? Michael. I have a servant named Michael. Are you of the Van Dornstein family, perhaps, or the Olive Annisters? Maybe the Sardorchesters? Well, are you going to say anything? Ah, uh, well, my, my, uh, my last name, um, is, uh, Smith. Smith? You were a blacksmith then? Yeah, a simple name such as that. You must be a commoner. Well, you'd better leave my field before my father returns. Go, now. Michael made to get up from the stump, but before he could stand, he felt his head swimming again, the same sensation as before. Michael the Smith, what is the matter? Michael barely heard the girl. He began to sweat again, and the colorful world spun, swayed, and got fuzzy all at once, just like what had happened in the bathroom stall before. He could see the bright blue sky fading to dark blue ceiling. He could see the girl disappear and be replaced by the dark green stall door. Slowly, the green grass and the blue sky faded completely until only the faintest trace of that sweet air lingered in Michael's nose, and soon that vanished as well. Michael was back in his stall at Levy. He sat there on the toilet, which seconds before had been a stump, and tried to figure out what had just happened. He sat there for another ten minutes, calming down, trying to understand, to make sense of whatever had just happened to him. He shook his head, trying to remember everything, just to be sure it was real. He remembered the girl, and the roses, and the colors, and smells, and concluded it must have been real. He also concluded the girl in the rose field was very pretty, a perfect match for that strange place. Michael's thoughts were disrupted by a group of boys entering the bathroom. Michael promptly got up and left, checked his face in the mirror, pulled his bag onto his shoulders, and went to math class. Two dreams. After the incident in the bathroom, the rest of the school day dragged on for Michael like a bad movie. He wanted nothing more than to go home and ponder the strange place he visited while feeling sorry for himself in the bathroom. When the bell finally did ring at three o'clock, Michael Smith ran to his bus without even stopping to get his books. That night, as Mr. Smith stood over the stovetop, stirring the hamburger helper with a long wooden spoon, Michael sat at the kitchen table, his mind fixed entirely on what had happened earlier at school. Michael sat scratching the side of his plate with his knife when Mr. Smith spoke. 
Michael, is, uh, is something the matter? You seem, I don't know, uh, sad, depressed. What's up? Mr. Smith looked back over his shoulder where he had draped a white and blue striped cloth as he asked, What's up? Michael knew he wasn't about to tell his dad about the episode in the bathroom that afternoon, so he just made up a response, the usual get-the-parent-off-your-back type of thing. Uh, nothing. Just a long day at school. Uh, we're doing this really hard stuff in math right now, that's all. Okay, said Mr. Smith, turning back to the noodles and meat. After dinner, Mr. Smith retired to his study to work on the case he was handling. Michael went up to his room under the premise of studying, but what he really wanted to do was find a way to go back to that colorful place. Although he had been confused and a little afraid, he had been in awe of that new place. Now, being back in this mundane, normal world, he felt like he couldn't take it. Everything was so dull compared to there. The sky was like an old sock here. There, in that strange place, the sky shone brighter than a thousand vagrant constellations. Everything was so full of life and color, the boy could not deny the impulse that throbbed inside his mind. Michael knew he had to go back no matter what. He lay back on his bed and thought about what had happened earlier. He was sitting in the stall in the boy's bathroom, thinking about his mother, and he felt as if he was going to cry. It must have been around 12.30, he guessed. He had eaten a turkey sandwich for lunch, washed down with some soda, and had eyed a brownie for dessert, the soft kind without nuts in it, and he hated nuts. He was wearing his red t-shirt with his dark blue jeans. He couldn't think of anything else specific to that exact time and place. He fell asleep as he thought about what had happened to him that afternoon, and he had a dream. It was about the girl. He was standing in the same field as the one he had seen that day, only this time, instead of roses as far as the eye could see, there was only one single rose. It sprung up from the ground exactly next to where the girl was standing. It was white. He was again sitting on the tree stump as before. It was night now in this place, but everything was still alive with color. Even the black velvet of the nighttime sky seemed to shine and gleam. Michael looked from the rose to the girl and back to the rose. He noticed the girl was wearing the same odd clothes as before, except this time her dirty blonde hair was let down to dangle just above her shoulders before it had been tied up into a tight bun. Michael now noticed for the first time how blue the girl's eyes were. Her eyes shone ten times more brilliant than the daytime sky of this place, beacons lighting the world. They were, full of, they were full of such life and energy as Michael had never seen before. Those eyes seemed to shine as if casting their own light into Michael's personal darkness. Then something strange happened. The girl's blonde hair turned red. At first, Michael didn't realize what was happening, but then he suddenly saw it. Her hair was bleeding, the blood pouring down from the middle of her skull, only... It wasn't blood, was it? It certainly looked red like blood, but Michael was not appalled by it like he was when he saw blood on television or in a movie. This red liquid seemed gentler, and the girl clearly was in no pain. It seemed almost as though the red was flowing out of her like a small creek in the forest, as though the girl wanted it to flow. Even stranger was the way the blood, redness, was falling. Instead of simply splattering upon the ground, it seemed as though the blood was being sucked into the rose like a vacuum cleaner. After a few moments, the flow of red stopped abruptly, and the white rose faded to deep, deep red in color. Realizing something was different, Michael looked more closely at the ground and now saw that there was another rose, identical to the first, sprouting next to his foot. This one was red, and it seemed to match the first rose exactly, as though they were twins, one for Michael and one for the young girl. 
Michael again looked from rose to rose to girl, and suddenly the girl was no longer standing next to the rose, but right in front of him. Something else had happened, too. The girl's face had changed and grown different somehow. Michael felt a great sense of recognition looking at this new face, and he was certain he knew the woman who stared back at him. In dreams, however, things are odd. He could not determine who the woman was, but her eyes were the same deep blue as the girls who had been there moments before. He stared into those deep, brilliant blue eyes and wanted to simply stare into them forever. Then the woman grabbed Michael's shoulders, her expression changing to a look of desperation as if she wanted to say something but couldn't. She shook him and shook him until he awoke, breathing hard and sweating. His first waking thought screamed inside his head to find a way back to that strange place. Thoughts of getting to the boys' bathroom occupied Michael's mind all morning, and he barely heard the teacher call telling him about the Civil War. At lunch, Michael made his way to the boys' restroom, full of hope and anticipation. He'd been unable to concentrate on his classes prior to this because of the hope of seeing the mysterious girl from his dreams, or maybe reality, again. He reached the big green door with the white figure of a man plastered against the black panel in the center. He pushed the door open and entered. Jacob Niles was standing by the mirror combing his jet-black hair down against his scalp until it was as flat as a pancake and shone with profuse amounts of hair gel. Jacob's eyes met Michael's in the mirror. They stood for only a moment, locked in each other's stares, until Jacob looked away and back to his hair. Michael opened the door to the same stall he was in yesterday, stepped in, turned, closed it behind him, put his bag on the floor, and sat down. He waited until he heard Jacob leave. Once he was sure Niles had gone, Michael tried to recreate the circumstances of the day before. The boy looked at his watch. 12.23. When he was in the bathroom yesterday, it had been 12.45, so he'd probably shifted. That's what Michael was beginning to call what had happened to him around 12.30. He sat down and cleared his mind. Five minutes, nothing. He thought about the girl. Eight minutes, nothing. He thought about Jacob. Ten minutes, nothing. He thought about his father. He was about to get up and go back to the cafeteria and finish his tuna sandwich when he suddenly remembered, as if out of nowhere, that his mother had made f the most unbelievably good tuna fish sandwiches. He began to feel dizzy, lightheaded. He knew at once it was happening again. He was shifting. The green stall door became hazy. The slow and steady drip drip of the sink faded away. The colors of his world slowly became darker, grayer, until they were completely gone. Then... The air snapped for a moment, and Michael was somewhere new. Michael's senses were bombarded with stimuli, colors so bright he had to squint for a moment, sounds of birds and bugs chirping carelessly, the smell of roses so strong he felt he was drowning in them, the wind blowing through his hair, lifting it ever so gently off his forehead, made all of Michael's senses come alive. His eyes adjusted. He looked up at the deep blue sky, spotless of clouds. He gazed down at the stump, and indeed it seemed he was in the same place as yesterday. Then he looked out at the rose field, and his heart sank. The girl was nowhere in sight. He had now been to this extraordinary place twice, and Michael felt the need to test his boundaries. He slowly began to stand up, and as he did so, he felt the world begin to sway and swoon. He held on to the colors and sounds and smells of the place, and the feeling shortly passed. Michael stood there, a large tree stump at his feet the sky a blue no earthly human had ever seen above, and an endless field of roses of the deepest red before him. He began to walk. Jacob Niles was waiting outside the boys' room for Michael. He was going to send the kid flying face first when he tripped him coming out of the bathroom. It'd be great. Jacob waited five, then ten minutes. He was getting bored. He decided to take the direct approach and just go into the bathroom and punch Michael while he was taking a dump. 
Jacob went back inside quietly. He tiptoed over to the stall he had seen Michael enter. Jacob could see Michael's bag on the floor in the stall. He reached for the handle and swung open the door, ready to spring, but there was nothing there, just an empty toilet. Michael was gone. Jacob was baffled. He'd been standing by the door ever since he came out of the bathroom. Surely Michael could not have slipped by, and besides, the loser's bag was still sitting in the stall. Jacob scanned the rest of the bathroom under every stall, but found no trace of his victim. Instead of wasting any more time on this silly matter, Jacob put Michael's bag in the toilet and flushed. Then he left, content that he'd still been able to bring some misfortune upon the life of Michael Smith.